0: Welcome to the University of Arizona Center for Compassion Studies. This is Conversations on Compassion. I'm Leslie Langbert. I'm really excited to begin this podcast series. We are going to talk with really creative, good-hearted, amazing people who are engaged in the work of expanding compassion throughout our community, throughout the country, and beyond. Um, I've often said that I have the great pleasure of working with some of the best hearts and minds in this business. And in these conversations, I'm engaging in in conversation with some of these these hearts and minds um, to share them with you, to offer an opportunity Uh, to hear their voices, uh, to learn from their perspectives, and I certainly learn from their perspectives every time I engage with them. Today, I'm talking with Al Kasniak, Professor Emeritus of Psychology here at the University of Arizona. He was one of the first researchers in meditation, and so we're gonna talk a little bit about how he got started in this field long before it became as mainstream as it is now. Al is also a sensei in the Zen tradition and he leads the Upaya Sangha of Tucson. We're going to talk about his path in the Zen tradition and talking about the teachings that he's offering in this way, where research and meditation is going, what we've learned so far, what questions are still out there to be explored. And also we're just going to talk about really the, the expansion of compassion in our own practice and, and how we're sharing it with others. I have the, the great pleasure of working with Al as one of the Faculty Advisory Board members here at the Center for Compassion Studies. And I also consider Al a friend. He's a really exceptional person. I'm always really impressed with his evenness, his calmness, the way that he embodies his practice. I feel that I learn so much every time I sit and have a conversation with him. I hope that you enjoy our conversation together. (laughs) Um, I'm here with Al Kazniak. Hi, Al.
1: Hello, Leslie. Good to see you.
0: Oh, it's so, so good to talk with you. Um, I'm so excited about starting our podcast. Really excited to start the conversation with you. Um, I've had the amazing opportunity to work with you now for a couple of years and experience teachings from you, both in a science context, and also in the context of hearing the Dharma and actually hearing them together. Um, and I just am really looking forward to talking today about the intersection, really, of of all of those things, about how science informs practice, how practice continues to inform research. So yes. as, a, as a psychologist and as a researcher, um, Let's just start there. Like how how did you start your research in the area of meditation?
1: Mm. So I I had been doing um research for quite some time, starting uh in the uh in, in the 1970s, uh focusing on aging and age related disorders of the nervous system. Uh but actually that that interest um was motivated by my interest in uh, contemplative practice and traditions, uh, particularly Zen Buddhism, uh, which became my own practice uh, tradition. Uh, and of course, uh, you know if, if one starts taking a look at uh, the, uh, th- those particular approaches to you know the, the existential dilemmas that we share in common, uh, the first thing you encounter is uh, a statement about the reality of of suffering, uh, and particularly the kinds of sufferings that accrue with uh, aging and approaching end of life uh, and illness. And so uh, much of, of my research that didn't seem to have anything to do with uh, contemplative practice was actually motivated by my own contemplative practice. Uh, But back in those days, uh, not very much opportunity to actually pursue research on contemplative practices themselves. Uh, They were uh, a bit suspect within mainstream academia. Uh, There were not funding sources to enable uh, those kinds of studies to get started. In any event, uh, as time went on, uh, things began to change a bit. And as opportunities became available... Uh, Both in terms of um, uh, organizations that were looking to support contemplative uh, science and and studies like the Mind and Life Institute, which I became very involved with, uh, and then various sources of of, uh, small amounts of of research funding to enable empirical studies to get started, Uh, my laboratory made a significant contribution um, to getting moving in that, and so we got involved in some early studies of uh, long-term meditators, began to do some studies of, of people uh, that we were training, training in uh, mindfulness-based stress reduction uh, kinds of approaches, and so that's kind of where it all began, and that may be um, about uh, 18, 20 years ago when, when we first got started, although a few years before things began getting published.
0: I, I've always appreciated so much that you're one of the original researchers of meditation here in the United States. And and I want to talk more about how you came to your practice. Um, I didn't know that about you, that your practice really kind of informed that interest in research. But before we kind of okay. dive into that, what is it that you think happened that sort of led to that, that shift in, research around meditation becoming really as, as prevalent as it is? What do you think was sort of the, the catalyst to actually kick that off?
1: You know, I think there were actually several things that came together. One of them was, uh, as, as you and many others know, uh, beginning really in the, the 1960s, there was an influx of particularly Asian uh, contemplative practice teachers coming to uh, North America, uh, and especially on the east and west coasts of the the United States. And gradually those individuals um, and the students who studied with them, who then became teachers in their own right, I think really began um, to uh, have some penetration within the culture more generally. And so gradually, it became less something that was identified with, um, oh, what to say, kind of you know marginalized uh, uh, groups, hippies, or you know who, right. whoever crash, uh, you, you know was identified yeah. with that. Yeah, uh, to uh, uh, you know people who were doing very mainstream sorts of, of things. Certainly, uh, folks like John Cabot Zinn and others who you know, a good quarter of a century ago now, introduced contemplative practices into healthcare settings and then into uh, business settings, I think that made a huge difference. It, it began to uh, take it out of a context of uh, exclusively Eastern religion uh, and uh, made it seem less esoteric, and I think that opened many doorways. Um, and then finally, I think um, in, in part because of those uh, things that were occurring, uh, other individuals began to organize and put together um, forums for being able to uh, share the you know beginnings of research that, that was going on, things that were being done in the, the late 60s initially and then in, in the early 1970s. And so the evolution of, uh, I mentioned before, the Mind and Life Institute uh, became very important, hosting meetings that brought together um, distinguished contemplative practitioners and teachers with scientists and philosophers uh, and, and other academics, uh, really accelerated that whole process. And uh, we began to see then in, in various um, well-placed, uh, in, uh, traditional, mainstream institutions of higher education, the establishment of programs and divisions and uh, recognized kind of entities, including your own Center for Compassion Studies at the University of, of Arizona. So I think uh, you know it was a gradual process and one influenced by several different streams uh, sort of coming together at the same time, fortuitously.
0: Yes. I know there is a lot of the movement really happened on the East Coast. Um, I know many of your your friends in contemplative practice and research were involved in that. So Sharon Salzberg comes to mind, Joseph Goldstein, um, Ram Dass, of course, and many, many yeah. others along with John Kabat-Zinn. And I know several, several of those individuals um, c- sort of got their start in contemplative practice um, as college students, going to India, studying with the same teacher. Mm-hmm. Um, so it it yeah. it seems kind of natural that since they were all from the East Coast area, that, that there would be kind of the the seeds planted there. But in the Southwest, it yeah. seems as though you were really a pioneer to take a, a risk, if you will, to, to start devoting research to meditation. Did you find that that was? embraced right away here um, or were there any challenges that you encountered well there being was were, part of the well, well,
1: wasn't fully embraced uh, right away I, I think that um, you know it, it's fair to say within academia there there's been deep suspicion of anything that might be called spirituality and I think that goes back to a history of um, really in in the 19th century in in the United States, what got called spiritualism, uh, associated with things like seances and and uh, you know, talking to the dead and and a, a, a number of things that um, especially mainstream uh, science, found to be uh, not credible, or at least certainly not fitting a, a worldview that that characterized the approaches of science at that time. so, no surprise, skepticism at, at the U of A, when especially uh, we uh, moved to begin what became the Center for Consciousness Studies, uh, which hosted um, every other year meetings in, in Tucson called Toward a Science of Consciousness, uh, and then the alternating years something in Europe or the Pacific Rim. Those uh, meetings really provided us a a kind of umbrella or uh, broader context to begin uh, bringing contemplative practitioners and those few people who were starting to do uh, research on on contemplative practices uh, into dialogue with with other academics, some of whom uh, were very um, hardcore uh, basic neuroscientists Uh, who had really never interacted with people from those kinds of backgrounds, but it proved uh, productive. Uh, It lowered some of the barriers, and that center at the University of Arizona, uh, of which I was uh, one of the the co-directors, became a forum for us to be able to start, um, if you will, legitimizing that sort of work. And so that Uh, As the meetings went on and, and, um, you know, various colleagues at the University of Arizona got involved in those meetings and saw that, uh, you know, there were people uh, doing credible science and and working uh, very hard to, uh, you know, pursue things that were firmly empirically grounded. Uh, That made a difference and as time went on, I think there was, there was greater acceptance then of this was a potential legitimate field for investigation.
0: Really a powerful way to, to begin. And that center is still active on the University of Arizona's campus, isn't it? it it's still
1: active. It, it is not uh, doing as many things as it did uh, back in the day. Uh, we had uh, the great good fortune of um, really abundant funding from the Fetzer Institute in uh, Michigan uh, that supported us and allowed us to do a number of things, including uh, running a small grants program so we could seed fund a number of things in the broad domain of consciousness studies. Uh, now its focus is predominantly on the, on the meetings that uh, occur each year, uh, but uh, those continue on vigorously
0: fantastic so you've you've watched the whole field of meditation research from the beginning you've been involved in it i know you continue to be involved in it and you've seen so much happen i mean it's really just exploded in terms of in terms of interest in terms of the places and the ways in which meditation and other contemplative practices are being offered in this country right now and I know that you've written with colleagues about some of the limitations or, or challenges in researching um, some of the structured protocols, like mindfulness-based stress reduction, um, cognitively-based compassion training, the protocol that we teach here um, and, mm-hmm. that was developed at Emory, and, and others. Um, what do you think that some of the really key implications are both for research and then what does that mean in terms of how we expand and share some of these ancient contemplative practices that we've adapted to sort of fit with modern American society?
1: Yeah. Yeah wonderful questions. So I, I think you know it's it's helpful to look at what has occurred in meditation research and and Uh, how that uh, has implications for uh, the practice of of meditation and and the degree to which that becomes accessible uh, more broadly throughout our Western culture. Uh, By looking at how this research area kind of evolved, Uh, it began really with some um, uh, initial studies Simply asking the question: Is it possible to document uh, anything that seems to be associated with the practice of meditation? And originally, uh, that research involved recruiting people who had a long-term practice uh, in in different meditative disciplines, including uh, Zen, uh, yoga, uh, other Buddhist uh, uh, meditative practices, and simply asking: Are they different from people who? Uh, uh, don't have a meditation practice. As those studies began to accumulate, and the answer to that question was was yes, there are differences in a number of different domains, then of course uh, the field began to move to asking uh, are those differences actually associated with the practice of meditation? Could be simply that people who get attracted to practicing meditation are different to begin with. Uh, And there's no way from cross-sectional studies that just compare people who do and do not practice meditation to know whether it's in fact meditation that's having a a causal role in that. So initial studies began to look at things like, you know, how often and for how long people have practiced. And then eventually uh, studies that um, actually... Uh, did uh, pre and post designs where people would be trained in a particular practice, say uh, something like uh, mindfulness-based stress reduction or, or other uh, similar sorts of, uh, of protocols, so that you could actually uh, examine individuals before they started the training, after the training, and then optimally for, for some time uh, after that. Uh, initially, those studies um, had some limitations in that often the the individuals were not randomized uh, to those uh, training versus uh, no training conditions. Uh, questions got raised about uh, if you're simply comparing people who get a particular training to those who have no training, uh, the people who are getting the training know that they're getting the training, and so there are uh, expectation biases that are associated with it. So. Uh, then you began to see studies that actually used uh, active kind of comparisons, other kinds of training that were not meditational. Uh, mm-hmm. And in total, you began to see uh, the field developing greater and greater sophistication in uh, methodological rigor that allowed answers to quest, that basic question of you know what difference does meditation make to become more and more precise and more and more specific. Part of what we've learned in that uh, is, is, first of all, that it's, it's very difficult uh, to demonstrate short-term effects that are greater than those of you know, some other kind of educational endeavor or some other kind of non-meditational practice. Lots of things um, make people feel better or uh, more relaxed or uh, more open to uh, experience. And so um, one of the things that, that uh, currently uh, is being talked about a lot is the need for longer term kinds of, of studies that really see what happens to people over much longer periods of time or more intense uh, meditation practice training. I think another thing that has, has come up, and this, this has become particularly important in the last few years, is uh, a, a good bit of questioning about now that we've uh, abstracted meditation practices uh, out of their uh, cultural traditions, out of say uh, the, the religious context in which something has uh, initially developed, say in Buddhism. Uh, are we you know flushing some of the baby out with the bathwater? Are there things that um, that, that cultural context or the other kinds of practices that accompany meditation in those traditions are actually doing that are kind of active in, ingredients for uh, personal transformation, for people becoming wiser, more compassionate, the kind of traditional um, orientations of, of those, uh, you know, wh- whether they're, they're religious or other kind of wisdom traditions. So um, a kind of recontextualizing now uh, a lot. And, and that's where a lot of um, scholars from, uh, whether it's religious studies or philo- philosophy or anthropology, are beginning to play really important roles, not just laboratory scientists. Uh, as we ch- try to you know, now put Humpty Dumpty back together again after you know, we've taken him apart uh, uh, to, to be able to ask these more detailed questions. And I think that's a very exciting development for the field because I think suddenly we're at the place of being able to uh, begin. The, the studies are difficult to do. But begin to, to ask uh, you know, re- really richer and, and fuller questions about the practice of uh, meditation, uh, you know, not, not only in um, uh, you know, short term, in medical settings, and business settings, but really, what you know what are the consequences and correlates of the practice of meditation in traditional settings, in traditional context?
0: Yes, I think that you know we're seeing so much in terms of contemplative practice and meditation being offered in so many settings, in so many different ways. You know, people are taking um, more traditional forms of retreat, but then there's also, you know luxury resorts are offering, Um, Meditation opportunities. Um, Meditations being brought into classrooms. It's um, being brought into prisons and other institutions. I mean, it's really becoming much more, much more broad. And you know, one of one of the things that that I get asked about a lot, I'm sure you do too, is around meditation apps. Um, Mm. You know, because we're we're still. We're still looking for ways, I guess, to be able to, you know, utilize our, our smartphones and our tablets in, in the best ways that we can. Um, what do you think about about an app as a way to provide um, a meditation practice? I mean, is that a, yeah. a viable way to begin or should we should we back away from it? I mean, what what are you what are your thoughts on that?
1: So the first thought is, you know, it it has been uh, said in uh, uh, meditation practice traditions that there there are you know a thousand dharma doors. In other words, there are you know many many different skillful means by which to uh, develop what meditation practice traditions have attempted to cultivate. And so I see no reason to uh, rule uh, these technologies out. Um, arbitrarily. They're uh, by anybody's measure part of our culture uh, right now. And if there are especially uh, subgroups within our culture, say uh, college-age students uh, that uh, have really grown up with these kind of technologies and are so intimately familiar with them, why not ask the question about whether they they might provide another skillful means. Uh, and, you know, I, you know I, I utilize my, you know, tablet to time my meditation sitting sessions in the, you know, in, in my own practice uh, at home, very handy for that. I don't tend to utilize uh, too many of the other things these uh, apps provide, like, you know, contact with other people who are practicing at the same time or, um, you know, access to different kinds of instructions, but only because... Uh, At this point in my practice life there, that's not so relevant. Uh, You know, a lot of that uh, has occurred for me in the long-distant past in terms of uh, access to training all, you know, that being mostly face-to-face training with the teacher. Um, But I could see where, particularly at at the front end of developing a a practice, uh, that could be uh, rather helpful. Clearly, there's also a a downside, so uh, you know, if if we're if we're spending you know all of our time with with our face in a you know a small screen, uh, attending to a, an a, an app, um, you know there, there 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 is much that has been uh, taught and, and written in contemplative traditions uh, to argue for the the great importance of face to face community. In, uh in in developing what uh, these practices aim toward facilitating and so you know one concern I have is the extent to which it removes us from face-to-face social interaction uh, and the important things that arise out of that I think another is um, you know we we're we're at a point and maybe you know maybe uh, the programming of these kind of apps could become sufficiently clever in into the, The future, but we're at a point right now where uh, they're kind of a poor substitute for an experienced meditation teacher, for someone who can um, notice the particulars about an individual, um, dimensions of their personality, where they come from, what their belief systems are, and skillfully use all of that to be able to help that individual find that which might. Uh, be most um, uh, helpful for them in developing a practice. And again, maybe, you know, maybe uh, technology will, will get there. At, at this point in time, it, it, it isn't uh, in, in my estimation. Uh, and I think then the, the third thing that's cautionary for me about all of this is, um, does it uh, reinforce our search for the, the instantaneous, for the quick, for the easy. Uh, those are certainly characteristics of, of our culture. Maybe yes. meditation practice is the sort of thing that's uh, less like uh, learning a particular sc- a tool skill and more like uh, a lifestyle. More like something that um, you know develops really over long periods of time, that has more to do with with how we live our life, how we make our commitments uh, to each other, and less with uh, learning something that's uh, you know going to be the, the the psychological equivalent of a of a magic pill. Uh, so I you know I think those are those are all things, but but uh, at the end of the day. Uh, these are empirical questions, you know, can can we um, apply the same rigor that we have to -to face-to-face meditation training and ask, uh, do these apps uh, serve benefit? Uh, Do they actually enable people to begin and and maintain and develop a a practice? Uh, Or uh, do they look more like, you know, kind of interesting novelties that, you know, people get attracted to, and then, you know, it's, uh, the, the competition for you know what whatever it is that people otherwise do with their cell phones and tablets uh, overruns that and it you know it's a flash in the pan then uh, but I think it's things we can ask about.
0: Yeah, I, I agree absolutely with that. I loved what you said about um, a thousand different doors to Dharma, and that they're... There is a place, right, for all of these different ways in which we begin to cultivate relationship with these practices, um, and yeah. accessibility, I think, is, you know, is I one think. of the things that you know we're. I know with the Center for Compassion Studies is something that I I think about. You and I have talked about a lot, um, and so I think you know apps have have some usefulness for that in terms of. The accessibility there, but absolutely the importance of having a teacher um, and and developing relationship with the practice. Uh-huh. Uh, yeah, yeah, rather than and, looking you know, at it you know, as
1: a there, there's an argument to be or, made that that you know all of this is is basically uh, relational, and and I don't I don't want to uh, use Buddhism as the only lens through which to look at contemplative practice because other religious and and uh, world traditions uh, have have. Uh, uh, you know, had their own traditions of of contemplative practice that they've developed. Um, but there is a story told about the Buddha's teaching uh, in which uh, his cousin and, and main assistant, say, you know, they're they're walking along the Ganges and and uh, seemingly having a nice day. And and his cousin Ananda says, you know, it it seems to me that um, you know relationship is is a good half of the spiritual life. And the Buddha repeat, reportedly says. You know, don't say that, Ananda. It's it's the entirety of the mm-hmm. spiritual life, and you know, so relationship really central. Um, you know, on the other hand, you know, we we have a a, a tendency toward uh, skepticism about certain technologies, and maybe forget that uh, you know, writing was a technology that uh, was was introduced in the the spreading of of these. Uh, kinds of of traditions that wasn't there from the beginning. You know, at least 300 years, uh, for example, again, in Buddhism, before anything of those teachings was committed to writing. So I'm sure there were skeptics about that technology at the time as well.
0: (laughs) That's a good point. That's a good point. I want to talk about your practice. Um, And we've we've just kind of touched on it briefly. as I mentioned earlier, uh, you know, part of your amazing um, career—not only as a, a scholar and a researcher and psychologist, but you're a Zen sensei as well. Um, so let's kind of back up from, um, you know, how how that evolved, how you became a, a teacher of the Dharma. How did you even begin your practice? Where did your journey begin? Uh.
1: So it, it was actually uh, first in as a college student. Uh, I came from a um, uh, blue class working, uh, rather a, a, a blue collar uh, working class family in Chicago, and I really had heard nothing about Zen, about Buddhism, uh, and it wasn't until uh, in in a required course in in college as as part of the. Um, liberal arts curriculum uh, where I, the college I started at, uh, I took a a world's religion course uh, with an extraordinarily uh, gifted uh, professor, now long deceased, and uh, was first introduced to, uh, by by reading uh, about Buddhism, and found that there was something that I um, very much resonated with, particularly with Zen. And part of it had to do with um, Oh, what to say? A, a kind of minimization of the necessity of fixed beliefs. Uh, it at least seemed to me to have some compatibility with the uh, empiricism of uh, Western scientific approaches. And I already was fairly committed to to science, both biologic science and psychologic science, uh, as a, a college student. And so. Um, spiritual traditions that require a lot of belief, especially belief that um, didn't seem particularly compatible with, with some of the uh, foundations of, of scientific approaches, those were difficult for me. So, so this you know, had, had some attraction. Um, like many individuals, I was uh, sort of a book Buddhist for a number of years. Uh, While I was, uh, you know, doing graduate study and launching my career and uh, starting a family and and all of of those things that keep us very busy in our lives. Um, But as uh, time went on and, you know, the kids uh, got old enough to to be in school and and that meant, um, you know, things were, uh, you know, I wasn't always changing diapers and, you know, doing that sort of thing uh, when I wasn't at work. Um, there was time for developing a practice and while that was primarily a solo practice, a a self-taught practice and so I you know I had certainly a fool for a teacher Um, but that was (laughs) was what was available to me Uh, and and then uh, in addition to developing a regular practice I I started going to uh, retreats, uh, explored different practice traditions um, but uh, eventually, um, through a, a combination of um, my wife Mary Ellen had gone to a uh, women's retreat at Upaya Zen Center in Santa Fe um, uh, that was focused on uh, women involved in social activism and community service, uh, and then the abbot of uh, Upaya Zen Center, Roshi Joan Halifax. And I um, began interacting through the Mind and Life Institute that we were both involved in. Uh, It seemed to me that uh, this was um, both a a person that I I felt some affinity to. Roshi Jones' background uh, is within science and anthropology. Uh, In addition to her her Zen background, uh, I liked the approach of Upaya Zen Center and its uh, Uh, Zen has had a a kind of mixed history there there's been a fair amount by my lights of sexism uh, within it's it been male-dominated. Upaya Zen Center was not it was uh, women-led many of the senior priests were women. In any event uh, I started uh, going there for um, retreats and and eight-day Sashin, silent meditation retreats Uh, and after a bit of time Uh, formally requested that Roshi Jones serve as my teacher, Uh, took uh, uh, vows in uh, um, the lay uh, practice of of Zen Buddhism. And uh, uh, then, you know, over some period of time, uh, she had um, announced to me unexpectedly uh, that she had decided to give me Dharma transmission, transmission, that is, to enable me to function as an independent teacher, uh, I thought she had made a terrible mistake in that decision. Uh, oh. That I I was neither qualified nor nor ready, uh, but there I was. And so at that point, uh, we began a, a very small practice group in Tucson, uh, one uh, that met at different people's homes and that grew. And we started renting space from a yoga studio, and then it grew beyond that and Now we rent space from a community meditation uh, center, and it's a very thriving sangha. Uh, I I was gonna just say briefly, um, you know, one of the the benefits of um, contemplative practice is, uh, you know, giving us an opportunity for quiet and for stillness uh, that allows for noticing certain sorts of things, (laughs) and so, um, for example, you know, one of the, <clears throat> pardon me, one of the ephemeral uh, aspects of my own life uh, is um, uh, the the sorts of things as a young adult that I took for granted in terms of physical vigor and, and uh, you know ability to participate in athletic things and, and all of that. Uh, now, as I'm older, uh, much of that is curtailed. I have osteoarthritis and um, painful joints. Uh, slow my gait and uh, completely eliminate running, and you know all those those kinds of things. Um, and yet, one of the things that I notice is, in that uh, enforced slowing down, uh, there's much more in my world that I notice. Uh, you know, much more that that you know sort of comes to my attention. So you know that I have to sit down more. Uh, you know, if I'm if I'm walking out out in nature. Um, suddenly, uh, you know, I'm aware of all kinds of detail that I had not been before. So, you know, that's, I don't want to be Pollyannish about it. It's not to say that, you know, given the option, I, I would, you know, not choose, you know, pain-free knees. Uh, but, you know, that's not the options presented, you know, there they are. And so, uh, you know, uh, one more opportunity to, to notice, you know, what else is present, and to not uh, just indulge the, the reactivity, you know, yes, you know, pain is unpleasant. Um, but as that reactivity arises, we can do different things with it. We can uh, either, you know, curse the fates and, and uh, you know, rush to blunting the pain and, you know, doing all the things that, that are, are common. Uh, or we can slow it down a little bit and just notice, oh, what is that? I, you know, what is this thing I call pain? Um, what does it actually feel like in the body? Uh, does it have a texture? Does it have a temperature? Does it have a, a pulsation? And, and once you start discovering some of that, um, much of the aversion uh, gets pulled out of it. You start noticing that uh, you know, there's, there's pain and then there's aversion to pain and they're kind of separable.
0: Mm-hmm. It's amazing what happens when we just allow ourselves to have open curiosity. It, rather yeah. than to be kind of trapped in the reactive patterns that we that we yeah. tend to yeah. go into, it's a it's incredible um, the way I had someone ask me in a meditation a couple of weeks ago um, if like when when could she expect that. In her meditation practice, like through through having a practice of meditation, at what point would she just not react to things anymore? (laughs) And and I just like you know I chuckled because I think that's probably I don't know many of us, myself included, I'm sure that that was early on probably something I thought would be a a realistic goal, you know. (laughs) (laughs) So <laughs> if I practice meditation enough, then I just I won't have reactive mind anymore. I won't get into you know these reactions. Um, but it's it's really it's really powerful, isn't it the way that we can notice for me usually after the fact and then kind of you uh-huh. know then step into the space of is there another way to see this? Can I be curious yeah. about whatever this is? Yeah,
1: yeah. Yeah, I think that's so well put, Leslie. The, you know, our our reactivity. You know, when you really watch it closely, um, it's again, it's just it's just part of our existential reality. Uh, you know, we things that uh, are uh, potentially threatening. Uh, we you know react to with aversion. Uh, things that are affordances that uh, are you know nurturing or nourishing. Uh, we react to with attraction uh, things that uh, uh, seem to you know be irrelevant uh, neither uh, you know satisfying some need or or posing a threat uh, we react to by ignoring <laughs> you know pretending it's you know of uh, no use whatsoever uh, and I don't I don't know that uh, meditation practice actually extinguishes that reactivity, although I'm, I'm very well aware that there are traditions that speak of it in that way. I think more of what happens is uh, the noticing of our reactivity gets closer and closer to its point of origination. And you begin to see it more quickly. You begin to see it with greater nuance and, and uh, uh, especially begin to see that it's not all Kind of automatic and continuous. There, there are little gaps uh, in there, and it's within those gaps that, uh, you know, our freedom really arises. That That's where we, we have some choices. And so, you know, yes, there's, you know, the reactivity of, of anger at an insult, or the, the reactivity of, you know, uh, taking offense at, at uh, you know, seeing someone else unfairly dealt with. And, you know, many of the times, you know we wouldn't want that reactivity to be totally absent. I think what we're really looking for is the ability to make choices about what we do with that and to not have that reactivity become prolonged, uh, persistent, overwhelming of other kinds of, of impulses or, or considerations. I think that's what we mean by liberation, the the freedom to be able to, uh, choose and to be able to pull in everything else that's, that's present in, in this moment that includes our intentions, that includes our appreciation of the context, that includes uh, seeing this other person before us as, as you know, the same as me uh, and no different from being so interconnected that it's almost impossible to see where one begins and, and the other ends. Once you know you, you allow that little bit of gap of time and it doesn't take very long for all of that to kind of impinge then i think you know we we become beings that are able to act out of out of wisdom which i think simply means having all of that available to influence how how we act and once that's present i think you know compassion is then naturally released i don't think we have to um You know, build compassion. I think compassion is part of our basic human nature. Most of the problem is what gets overlaid on top of it, especially um, based on fear that gets in the way of its expression. Uh, And having a practice that simply allows us to be quiet and slow down a bit to notice how all of that's unfolding, you know, really quickly in the moment. Uh, that's what gives us that, that liberation, uh, including the liberation of that natural compassion
0: So well said and a really wonderful note I think for us to to close this conversation on and I feel like we need a part two um, so that we can continue to take that thread further so I'm going to propose that that at a at a later date we We do another, um, we have another conversation, and we really focus it around that. I have so appreciated this conversation, this time with you. I always do. I always feel like every time we come together to talk that I could talk with you all day long. Um, I always learn something. I'm always uh, feeling inspired at the end of of our conversations. I thank you so much. Well, the gratitude is, is mutual.
1: Thank you. Uh, and thank you especially for, you know, for what you do uh, in the world and especially in the Center for Compassion Studies uh, to, you know, make things available uh, to people. And, and I know that, um, you know, there, there's very little, uh, um, you know, sort, sort of uh, material reward. But, you know, the, the work that you do brings so much to Uh, people who I think really deeply appreciate it.
0: Thank you. Thank you so much and thank you for being a part of what we're doing. My pleasure. Well, there we are. Teachings from the incredible Al Kasniak. You know, I especially appreciate what Al was, was speaking to in terms of the ephemeral nature of life, our ability to cultivate a sense of, of ease with what is, and that deepening of joy that happens when we're able to attune. All of the ups and downs of life. We move through painful experiences and things shift and change, sometimes in ways that we don't like or we don't anticipate. But by being open to them and observing and allowing them to, to be, it seems like the times that bring great joy really enhances and deepens the joy I hope that you enjoyed this I really appreciate that you listened that you hung in this whole time if you are in Tucson you can find Al each Saturday offering teachings at the Upaya Sangha of Tucson and if you are in Tucson if you're outside of Tucson you can hear and see more of Al's teachings by visiting the Center for Compassion Studies website, which is compassioncenter.arizona.edu. Thanks. We'll see you soon. This has been another episode of the University of Arizona Center for Compassion Studies, Conversations on Compassion. This has been produced by Gary Forger. Our sound engineer is Gary Darnell. Music produced by Gary Darnell and the incredible team at the University of Arizona Office of Instruction and Assessment. This is Leslie Langbert with the Center for Compassion Studies. Thanks for listening.